Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. I don't think we really know yet how to do it on the scale of millions or hundreds of millions of people. How do you do cooperative governance? We, we have no idea at this point, but we have to start somewhere. We have to try things. We have to experiment. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that, that Intentional Communities offers. That was Sky Blue, and yes, that is his name, super cool. He's the executive director for the Foundation for Intentional Community and has spent the last 20 years living in, working for, and networking intentional communities, cooperatives, and community organizations. Stay tuned as we're about to explore what it is that led to our hyper-individualistic culture and how that's impacted our collective well-being, what intentional communities are all about, and how they can root our society in the things that matter most, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I definitely uh, got a inspiration to care for nature from my parents, and I would say specifically from my father. My father always made sure to take me and my my siblings out to nature, as as he would say, as resistant as we were. But in retrospect, as much as at times I might have resisted it, it was really important in establishing that that relationship with with the natural world and and seeing myself as part of of the natural world and not just caught up in human society, but, but that human society is interdependent with the natural world. And my parents also brought me into community living as well. I, uh, they actually met at an intentional community called Twin Oaks, uh, which is a 52-year-old intentional community that I then ended up living at for a total of uh, 14 years as an adult. I wasn't born or raised there, but certainly my the, the sort of spiritual conception of, of me came from, from that community and their, their meeting there. And I would say part of all of that, too, was was a larger sense of responsibility towards humanity and the world. I definitely was raised with a sense of of being a global citizen and that and that being a global citizen, I carry with me a responsibility to try and make the world a better place. And so living in community is is a key aspect of that is is an important vehicle for for trying to make the world a better place. Mm. So you had lived in the Twin Oaks community, which is in rural central Virginia. It's an intentional income sharing community that is self-supporting economically and partly self-sufficient. Was this considered off the grid? And can you paint a picture for us of what everyday life was like there? 
So Twin Oaks is somewhat unique in the world of intentional communities, at least amongst secular intentional communities, in that it is an income-sharing community. Most intentional communities are some form of what I would call expense-sharing, meaning everyone has their own individual finances, they may have even their own houses, uh, or at least their own uh, rooms in in a large house, depending on the kind of community it is. But then they all have some set of collective expenses, probably a mortgage or a lease or uh, maintenance expenses or different sorts of things that they might contribute equally or according to, to usage. Twin Oaks comes at it from a slightly different angle, which is to share all of the income, pool all of the income up front, and then as a community, collectively, democratically decide how to budget all of that money out. What it also means is that there's no money exchanged internally to the community. The internal economy of of Twin Oaks is based on a labor system. So you have to work a certain number of hours a week, and then that entitles you to the full resource sharing systems of the community that provide for all of the basic needs of its members, as well as as many amenities. What's interesting about that is is that sharing on that level, particularly of, of income, it lends itself very well to a high degree of resource sharing, which reduces the need for money in particular. So, so Twin Oaks is actually able to maintain a you know roughly middle class standard of living on about six or seven thousand dollars per person per year, mm. which is a pretty remarkable feat. But it what it involves is a, is a lot of sharing, and so you have to spend a lot less time buying things that you normally would have to buy because you're sharing them with others. And so, you know, and and this is this is core to all intentional communities. I would say that in many respects intentional communities at their core are about sharing. And sharing resources, sharing lives, sharing a sense of purpose, uh, it has some very distinct social, economic and ecological benefits and and those are all intertwined, and that is by design. And so, so you you have this increased sense of social satisfaction because you have more of a sense of shared meaning with the people that you live with, and you're engaging with them in a more active day-to-day way. And so there's just a, a greater level of intimacy that comes from that, and, and so more, more social satisfaction. When you share more, obviously, it's it's cheaper, so there's, there's that economic benefit. Uh, in there as well, as well as as often being able to access more resources than you would have if you were just on your own. So, for example, at Twin Oaks, you know, there's a uh, there's a whole music room with a full set of of, of instruments and sound equipment. There's a uh, exercise room. There's a sauna. There's you know all these different things that me personally I might not have access to if I were just living on my own, or I would have to spend a lot of money paying for those kinds of services. So again, that sort of it's 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 less expensive and it's it's greater access. And then on the ecological side of things as well, obviously the more you're sharing, especially on a material level, um, you're consuming less, you're wasting less. And so it's more ecologically friendly. And again, all of these are just sort of naturally, or you could say by design, intertwined in in an intentional community. And especially in a community like Twin Oaks, where that that degree of sharing is so high, uh, a lot of those benefits are really heightened. At, at Twin Oaks, you know, it, everyone has their own room. The, the, there's, uh, it's all uh, collective housing. The community grows, produces about 50% of its own food um, through gardens, orchards, and a, and a herd of cows for dairy products. 
community does all of its own maintenance. You know, then there's all the self-governance of the, the, the community, goes in all the decision-making that has to go into operating the whole place. But then also on the level of caring, and I think this is where where particularly these, these models can show some of their biggest benefits. You know, many communities, even if they're not income sharing, by nature of, of people living in proximity with each other, and uh, again, sort of the architecture of communities putting people into closer contact, but then also the the, the freeing up of time and energy by uh, living more closely. There's a level of caring uh, for each other that just sort of naturally comes in again when you share on on a on a greater level. And again, Twin Oaks as an income sharing community, it can kind of take this to a to a, a deeper level where, especially as a 52-year-old community, there have been many babies born in the community and there have been a number of elders who have, have grown old and passed away in the community. Mm-hmm. So it very, is, very much is a cradle-to-grave community. And, and basically, you know, because of the income sharing model, as long as the financial needs of the community are, are met and that doesn't take up, you know, all of the community's time – which at Twin Oaks, the average member there only works about 15 to 20 hours in any of the community's businesses. And everything else goes into all of the cooking, cleaning, gardening, maintenance, uh, et cetera, as well as child care and elder care. So, so there is this ability to value work in that kind of a situation that isn't valued or as valued in in a mainstream context. And and again, I think you can particularly see this in the amount of support for children and families and as well as elders that that, um, the community is able to provide. Mm. So income sharing or not income sharing, in the context of our recent history, what do you feel like drove our departure away from community as an integral part of our modern lives? And what has been the cost of that? To put it simply, I would say capitalism, but obviously that begs a, a, a little bit more explanation. Um, I think you know the the economic system that has predominated for the last couple hundred years uh, is one that is very much geared towards the individual. When you have an economic system that is built around corporations who are are trying to make a profit, for the most part, they're more able to make a profit when you as an individual are buying everything as opposed to there being a, a sort of a collective purchasing or or engagement in the economic system and so you know you just see in 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 the sort of uh, commercialism and the the whole way that that the economy is set up it's it's all geared towards this uh, and the individual experience and i would say that we've kind of moved into a sort of culture of of kind of hyper individualism. Mm. The irony of it is that there is also this incredible de-skilling uh, that has happened, especially over the last fifty to hundred years. Where even a hundred years ago, the you know a lot more people had an ability to grow food or or do things for themselves. And to the extent that that has been essentially discouraged in in our economic and cultural systems, it's left people less and less able to sustain themselves, just very much putting them on their own in a position where they need to work a job to make money to buy everything that they they need. The the irony of the situation that we're living in today is that we are are less able than than ever before to take care of ourselves. So so we are more 
dependent on on each other than we have possibly ever been in, in human society. And yet we are constantly being told that the individual is the is the focus and that and that the sort of individual freedom and liberty is is sort of the, the most paramount goal. Mm-hmm. So it it what it takes away from is the recognition of of the interdependence of all people, but also of all life. The fact that that we are dependent on other forms of life for our, our sustenance as well. And that that this general sense of uh, of belonging has been lost. I would say that, you know, I think a lot of of what you see in mainstream society with the the sort of endemic isolation, alienation, loneliness um, that that's occurring. And and it's interesting to see how increasingly medical professionals, uh, government agencies around health in the U.S. and other countries are increasingly recognizing loneliness as an epidemic and and starting to actually study the the negative health effects of loneliness and looking at who are the the, the groups of people who are sort of most at risk of of being lonely so i think that i think that this is this is the one of the the key symptoms and then that loneliness or that sense of of separation disconnection that then of course allows you to uh, make choices that may not be great for other people or the planet but you are uh, separated from uh, from the impact of of that because of the much larger systems that we're basically all sort of forced to participate in. So I think a big part for me of of why live in an intentional community uh, or you know any kind of small smaller group cooperative kind of situation is that it gives you practice. It helps you practice being in relationship and relearning that sense of belonging and redeveloping skills for being able to work together and to be able to be a more more self-sufficient. Um, self-sufficiency is is a little bit of a, you know, we have to be careful with that because I think a lot of, of people's uh, impulses around wanting to create self-sufficient, sustainable communities uh, is still kind of playing into that isolated hyper individualism of our culture like no no community is an island you know no no community is is separate from the larger context of human systems or natural systems that is uh, that is a part of so the idea that one community of of any you know 10 to 100 people will be able to provide for all of its needs uh, i don't necessarily think that that's that should be the goal like i think i think we should be looking more at sort of local bioregional kinds of systems in terms of of how do we meet the needs of of the people and the the land uh, in those systems. Mm. I want to emphasize earlier, you mentioned the irony of us becoming super hyper-individualistic at the same time that we're losing our fundamental knowledge of what what it takes to take care of ourselves and to grow our own food and et cetera. I mean, how how much of this is just because our society seems to devalue human labor and it seems to really prop up like technological advancement and automating everything and everything being done through intelligence. We don't want to uh, fall into the trap of of getting into the back in the good old days mm-hmm. um, sorts of sorts of things. So, you know, I mean, there there has been essentially global trade since the 1600s, and there's been 
trade spanning continents for for millennia. Um, like that's that that's not going away. The the technological evolution that's also not going away. Like we're not we're not going to just sort of all of a sudden decide as as a human society we're going to just get rid of all of the the technology we've developed. I think we do have to as a society start to ask some fundamental questions about what technology is appropriate mm. and what what is actually going to be useful and what actually can be done in a sustainable way with the natural world and what technology does you know make our lives easier as well as connecting us and as well as as being integrated into the natural world i mean i don't i don't necessarily have a problem with automation what i have more of a problem with is automation not leading to people's lives being easier but some people being able to make more of a profit mm. off of off of that or automation in being able to make more stuff that people don't really need that are consuming non-renewable resources uh, or renewable resources at unsustainable rates. So I think that kind of selective application of of technology is key. Like I think you know the ability to travel around the world and the ability to communicate with people around the world. I think that's one of the ways that we maintain a peaceful global human society. But again, we have to figure out how to do that in a way that that actually connects people and that is sustainable for the planet as some baselines. And again, I mean I think, you know, why why intentional community? I think it it's a practice ground. You know, we we have to be looking on this very very personal level of the choices that each of us make in terms of our lifestyles, daily lifestyle choices we make, uh, but also on a, on a kind of transpersonal level of who am I in the world? Uh, what kind of person am I? How do I want to show up in the world? And then looking at that all the way up to these global uh, social, economic, political, and, uh, and natural systems that we're we're all part of, mm. which are, which is completely overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming <laughs> to try and think about it on that level. And I think, you know, the problems that we are, have kind of created and are facing as human society today, it's, it's, you know, it's just so hard to, to look at it and to think, how could I, as an individual, hope to have any ability to, to change any of that. And so I think a lot of people, even who, you know, when they recognize those problems, for a lot of people, the answer is, it's like, well, I'm just going to work on myself. Mm. And that's important, but that's not necessarily ultimately going to affect that change on a larger level. So I think we have to find an access point. We have to find somewhere in, in between where we can figure out again, how to regain that sense of belonging and how to actually work together uh, in cooperative ways, and then start to do it at a scale that is both manageable and attainable to be able to start to see how larger and larger systems could be affected by by the, the, the choices we make. It sounds like that's really the epitome of the saying to think global and act local. Right, exactly. There's a, you know, there's a, a bit of history with intentional communities where the, the first communities to identify as intentional communities, and that term was coined actually in the 1940s. And there was a, an organization called the Fellowship of Intentional Communities that was formed in 1949. And one of the people who was involved with that uh, wrote that they were, they were coming together out of their shared commitment to create a more humane and equitable global society. Mm. 
And I think about that in terms of, of you know, this is the 1940s. So it's, it's the, having that kind of vision for global humanity is not necessarily something we think about it as, as being present in, in at that time. But, but people, the, the people who were, were starting these communities, they were Quakers, they were anti-segregationists, they were conscientious objectors. They were looking at the, the, the horrors of World War II and sort of having a sense of the world coming apart at the seams and, and really feeling this call of like, well, we need to do something here. We need to be participants in global society in a responsible way, organize communities that, that can actually maybe have a chance at having an impact on these larger systems. And so that organization uh, existed for a couple decades. Then uh, it kind of fell away. We had the 60s and 70s, which were more typified by these uh, countercultural, back to the land, uh, sort of hippie commune, sort of things that that you know provided something useful in the experimentations that they were the the ground for being able to just try new things in a way that was you know that was that was kind of separated from mainstream society. Um, so there was something useful there, but then there was also this kind of escapism and isolationism um, that was going on there, a, a rejection or a, a, a trying to get away from from society in a way that just is not realistic. You, 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 you can't escape being a part of society at this point. I mean, there, that's, there's, there's too many people on the planet and the systems that we're, the, the social systems and institutions that we've all created, just you, you can't really not participate in, in some way, uh, shape or form. And so I think Coming out of the 60s and 70s, uh, the the organization that I work for, the Foundation for Intentional Community, which was was formed out of that original fellowship of intentional communities, uh, it was reformed in 1987 with the goal of really trying to bring this concept of intentional community uh, more up into the public consciousness and to do more support of all different kinds of of intentional communities. And then here we are, 2019, and and I look at it and I'm like, wow, we're we're that sense of that the folks in the 1940s had of that the world is kind of coming apart at the seams, and that we need to create these communities that that have an impact to help move the the world in a more equitable and humane direction. I'm, I'm I look at that and I'm like, wow, we're we're kind of right back there. Mm. Here we are again, and 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 you know, over the last. Uh, 20 years that I've been involved with this movement, I would say that increasingly, you know, that's, that is the orientation of communities that are forming or ones that have um, started in the last 20, 30 years is, is it's, it's not that we're separate from society, it's that we are a part of society and that we have a responsibility to have a positive impact. Mm, it's, it's almost like a way to keep our modern society rooted in the things that really matter and that mm-hmm. really create true wealth for our society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess just with your experience with this area, what approaches are you taking to expand this cooperative culture in a world that seems to be encouraging the opposite? And what has been the most effective in doing so? I, I keep coming back to sharing as as the sort of core aspect and and the connections between sharing materially and sharing socially and that basically you could say that that when the more you share materially or economically, the more you just have to deal with each other in a way that, again, society is is designed 
for us to not have to deal with each other. You've got your individual house, you've got your your job where you maybe don't even have to interact that much with other people. Um, there's a segmentation of the different aspects of, of your life so that, you know, who you live with, who you work with, who you play with is maybe all, you know, different people that are not connected with each other. It's all, you go from your house to your car, to your office cubicle. It's all designed to not have to deal with each other, to not have to interact with each other. And in, in intentional community, it's it's the opposite. We are designing it so that we do have to interact with each other, so that we do have to deal with each other, and and on a, a more level playing field. So so that you know it's not a, a typical hierarchical situation where if you get in a disagreement or whatever, you can just get fired. You can't fire each other. <laughs> intentional community, you have to you have to work things out. So relationships become paramount. Uh, the, the emotions that people feel uh, actually matter in the situations. You have to take those into account. Um, so it, it just makes us interact with each other in a way that fundamentally shifts the culture that we're, we're participating in. Uh, again, kind of recognizing that interdependence, recognizing that sense of belonging that we had have. And then, and then I believe that that translates out to our interactions with, again, people outside of our communities, but also the, the, the natural world. You know, there's a particular thing, too, I would say, you know, connecting it to to land in the natural world. There's this amazing fiction of private property that that we've created that we take so for granted. You know, we we there is this this idea that that you can own a piece of land and and we don't really question what does that mean? Does it, it means that you get to do whatever you want to or on that piece of land and no one else can have a say in it and it doesn't matter what larger uh, ramifications it, it might have like it, it, it on some of when you start to just kind of uh, look at it and not take it for granted there's just these ways that it kind of just it stops making sense on some level mm-hmm. and so I, with intentional communities the generally not not always but generally speaking the the goal is to have land held in common and so then when you get out of that idea of, of individual ownership of land and into a collective stewardship of land, you could say, it just fundamentally alters your relationship with that land. You start, you start relating to it in, a, in an entirely different way than when you feel like you personally own it. And then it's very easy from that perspective to start seeing uh, that land that you are on or that you're stewarding in the larger context of the land around you as well. So I think the, you know, there's a there's a variation on the golden rule, which I really like, which is do unto others downstream as you would have others upstream do unto you. Mm. And and so I think it gets to that idea that we have to look at the larger systems that we are, are part of. No person nor any nor one community is a, is an island. It's it's all it's all connected. And I think the the opportunity of intentional communities and organizing this way and collectively owning land and sharing resources allows us to really embody that that idea and to to build our cultures around it. Mm. Well, in some ways, living in intentional communities with their own ways of self-governance feels like a liberation from the norms and expectations of modern society. And I can almost picture a path we go down where we almost give up on our greater national governance if they're unable to truly serve the needs of their people mm-hmm. and for people to join and grow these independent communities where they can really realize the, the lives that they want to live and help create change just by choosing to exist and self-govern in a different 
different way locally, like you mentioned, in terms of creating an, an alternative to what we have right now. So to expand upon this, how do you think the growth and expansion of individual intentional communities can serve to spark the positive change needed in our country and in our world today beyond their boundaries? I think one of the things that that I see in intentional communities is that there tends to be a much higher level of civic engagement of people living in intentional communities. There actually is a, a research group related to the to the co-housing movement, which is kind of a, a sub-movement of the intentional communities uh, movement, a group called the Co-Housing Research Network. And they they did some, some looking at different things. And what they did find was that uh, the level of civic engagement amongst people in co-housing communities was much higher than the the sort of national average mm. and and you know often sort of participation in things like you know the local peace and justice center or food not bombs or you know any number of different community organizations it's, it's like it's just it's very common for people to to engage in in that from the communities they live in um, there was there was quite a number of, of of people from different intentional communities that spent time at Standing Rock during those those protests um, and you know again I mean there was a there was a way in which living in, in intentional community, again, is this sort of freeing up of time and energy and the support that was there to be able to engage on these uh, larger issues. So I think that's a, a key part of it, the kind of support and the, the refuge that the, that intentional communities have the potential to provide to, to, to its members to be able to do uh, even larger, larger work. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I mean, I think there's, there's some some just basic healing that 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 happens in intentional communities again around our 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 sort of disconnection from each other and from the natural world and that sense of belonging that we're relearning that that we then take with us into all aspects of our lives and all interactions with people these different uh, practices around cooperative governance around democratic uh, budgeting and uh, transparent financing, these decision-making models, governance models um, that provide some structure that maybe even to some extent you utilize uh, hierarchy or at least delegation of decision-making responsibilities, but that uh, there is there are avenues for being able to uh, call decisions into question or appeal decisions or or that sort of thing. I, I, all of these, the basic principles of how groups of people govern themselves and the kinds of structures they can use, um, you know, often these are applicable on on very a wide spectrum of, of scales. So they can it can work with a small group of people, or it can work with potentially thousands, if not uh, tens, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, I think you know, as another for example, the back when the 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 large protest movement uh, still had some steam you know coming out of the 1999 the world trade organization protests in Seattle you had tens of thousands of people who were engaging in a spokes model a spokes council model of consensus decision making to to plan and uh, and execute these large scale actions so you know sometimes people even in intentional communities people will say oh consensus doesn't work when you've got more than you know a dozen people or something like that and i think you know it's not there are actually examples out there of how you can make consensus work amongst very large groups of people you just have to be smart about it you just have to figure out what are the are the right kinds of structures to to build uh, around that basic idea that everybody has to be uh, has to consent to the decision that is being made. So I, I think, uh, ideally, obviously, on a on a national scale, 
you know, we're trying to do, make a make a society that works for for everyone. So everyone needs to be involved and included in in some way. And this idea that that you know, fifty one percent of the people get to decide what uh, what happens to everyone is <laughs> just kind of it doesn't really work. Mm. Um, and and so we we don't I don't think we really know yet how to do it on the scale of millions or hundreds of millions of people. How do you do cooperative governance? We, we have no idea at this point, but we have to start somewhere. We have to try things. We have to experiment. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that, that intentional communities offers is that they're microcosms, you know, everything that, that, the members of intentional communities are bringing in is everything that we're all bringing in from the society that we live in. And so, so, but we have this opportunity to try and deal with that on a smaller scale and start to see what could maybe work on larger and larger scales. Hey, I just wanted to thank you sincerely for your huge heart and continued dedication to being the change that you want to see in the world. I know it's not always easy, but the world is a better place today because of you, and I'm truly honored that you're here. If Green Dreamer has become a part of your routine and you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month, which will also gain you access to extended content, that would be so immensely helpful, and I would so greatly appreciate that. You can head to greendreamer.com com/support to learn more. Green Dreamer is also now on YouTube, and I hope to start doing some real-life field interviews soon, so I'm not just sitting here in my closet <laughs> staring at a screen and I can actually get out there and connect with people in real life. So if you're interested in staying posted on this, you can head to greendreamer.com slash YouTube to subscribe for free. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? I love a lot of what uh, Vox does. Vox with a V, not with a not Fox with an F. <laughs> um, uh, Vox is a is a great outlet. Some of the stuff that they're doing around uncovering hidden history, but also Vox Borders um, is one that I particularly like in terms of you know what the stories that it's telling of around the world of of the effects that that borders have um, and how. People are, are struggle with that and are trying to try to try to come together. Mm. It's a it's a, I, one that I find really inspiring. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Oh gosh, that's such a good question because it's tough in, in the in the world today. I mean, really, on some level, I I think I just hold that, and you know, I I travel around a lot, and everywhere I go, in whatever kinds of context, whether it be an intentional community or, or just you know, stopping in a restaurant or a store in some some town or city, my general impression is that the vast majority of people they just want to live their lives they want to they want to feel happy and healthy and they want to feel a sense of fulfillment and uh you know that that basic just human desire to to belong like that that's what i see and so i i feel like that's that's what's fundamental to being human and that all of the things that we see in the news or in how society is structured that seems to be detracting from that that I, I I see that as anomalous. Like that's just this overlay of of culture and society that we've that has kind of run away with itself, but is not actually um, how most people want to want to live. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? 
always bringing more mindfulness to what I eat and, um, you know, just whatever I put in my body. And I main, try and maintain a daily meditation practice, uh, stretch, do yoga, um, that sort of thing. So just, you know, trying to to make sure that that all of those different aspects of, of health that I'm being conscious of that and and uh, being aware of of how they affect me and 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 keep developing my practices around that. What's one thing you're working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? A big part of the work that I do as the executive director of the Foundation for Intentional Community is to try to build a sense of cohesion and awareness of this movement. Uh, so within this movement, of, amongst intentional communities, like helping make sure that uh, intentional communities are aware of each other and the common struggles that they have and making sure that they, you know, finding ways that they can to support them learning from each other and then and then being able to then have that be more amplified in the public as well. So doing different kinds of media work or uh, public outreach, um, that sort of thing. So, so, you know, just trying to help intentional communities have as much of an impact themselves as communities and as a movement as possible. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? It's the little things. A recent uh, experience I had, I was walking in in a park. I was hiking in a park recently, and and I passed a couple. And the, the woman looked, we happened to make eye contact and said hello. And this was, it happened to be on Father's Day. And, and she, and I, I have a son, um, so I, I am a father. And she she sort of looked back after we said hi and said, and if you're a dad, happy Father's Day. So for me personally, Father's Day actually doesn't mean a, a whole lot. And it didn't actually doesn't actually mean a whole lot for, for my dad as well. We sort of can think of it as just being the sort of hallmark holiday. <laughs> but but that that random act of kindness from a complete stranger, just you know, reaching out and and saying, I, you know, there, there, that little bit of, of caring and acknowledgement, like that meant the world to me. Mm. So whatever, the holiday aside, those little moments of connection um, that I get to have with with people from, you know, whatever sort of background or situation where we where we can just acknowledge each other and, and say, hey, we, you know, we care about each other. Um, that's what gives me hope. And so IC.org is your website. Is there anywhere else that we can go to stay posted on what you're up to and support your work online? FIC has a, we have a, a Facebook page, we have a YouTube channel, so, so the, you can check those out. Uh, we also work with a wide range of other organizations as well, and we, you, can, you can find uh, links to different organizations like the Co-Housing Association of the U.S., the Global Eco-Village Network, uh, North Americans for Students for Cooperation. You can find links on our website to those groups as well, but, but all of these different groups are, are important, uh, doing, doing really important work, and, and that we, we try to work together. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Some of the wisdom that I've been given recently is that I think we exist in a kind of false sense of crisis that masks the very real crisis that we that we are facing as people, as communities, as, as global humanity, um, and that we have to slow down. And, and that might seem contradictory in the face of, of crisis, but, but we have to slow down because we, we don't have time to not figure out how to address this crisis and respond appropriately. 
there's a lot of, of kind of spinning our wheels that, that you can see going on in different organizations and our political system and, uh, and that sort of thing. Again, we, we have to sort of hold ourselves back from thinking that we know what to do and that that process of slowing down and coming into relationship with each other. That's the, the, that, that quality of, of being in relationship that's what I've been getting as, as, as being so key, being able to be in relationship, have the conversations, be in the dialogues that we need to and slow down to be able to have those conversations and figure out together what is going to be most effective in responding to the crisis that we're in. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube now at greendreamer.com slash YouTube. Become a patron and access extended content by going to greendreamer.com slash support and subscribe to our weekly solutions-driven newsletter at greendreamer.com. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.